Hello, this is Jason, filling in for Andrew, who is still recuperating, getting better day by day. Talked to him yesterday, he's doing great, uh, but still taking some time to get back on his feet, understandably, and I know he did not want to leave this podcast hanging, and I am absolutely incredibly honored to be here to fill in again this week talking with Alex. Hello, yes, and I'm happy to, uh, always happy to lend a hand to Andrew, especially right now, but it's uh, it's it's actually not a big deal for me because I love this movie, so I'm excited to be here. <laughs> well, Alex, welcome thank to Triassic thank Park. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this week, yeah, we're overjoyed to talk about, in my humble opinion, one of the greatest films of all time, 1982, John Carpenter's The Thing, starring mm. Kurt Russell, a beardless Wilford Brimley, shockingly so beardless Wilford Brimley. Keith yep. David, T.K. Carter, Richard Mauser, Richard Dyser, Charles Hallahan, um, among many others. Um, and as I said, this is 1982's The Thing, but our story begins instead in the mid-70s. David Foster and Lawrence Terman suggested making a new adaptation of John Campbell Jr.'s 1938 story, Who Goes There? The first uh, iteration being the Howard Hawks classic 1951 black and white film, The Thing from Another World. At the time... Hal Barwood and Matthew Robbins, were, who had worked on Sugarland Express and Dragon Slayer together, passed on it. So Universal obtained the rights. John Carpenter was approached by friend Stuart Cohen in 1976 to make the film. But Universal wanted what they thought was more of a sure bet. And they already had Toby Hooper on the payroll. And he was only a couple years away from making the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Ultimately, though, they did not like Toby and his writing partner, Kim Henkel's concept, so they pursued multiple avenues, including John Landis for the picture. None of that panned out, so the project was put on hold. It wasn't until 1979, when Ridley Scott's Alien lit the world on fire, that Universal decided they needed to strike while the iron was hot. So they returned to now-famous John Carpenter following 1978's Halloween. John had other interests, though, as well. And also, he wasn't completely sold that he should make a f remake of the Howard Hawks picture, having used it multiple shots in Halloween. Also, he had some passion around a Western comedy film, El Diablo. And so the thing was back on hold during this time. Other directors were considered as well, among them Sam Peckinpah and Walter Hill. That is until 1981, when El Diablo was put on hold itself. This film, by the way, wouldn't be made until 1990 as a TV movie, directed by Peter Markle and starring Anthony Edwards and Lou Gossett Jr. It was then that Carpenter's The Thing began to take some shape, not without fighting with the studio, concerns about the safety of the cast, trouble on the set, and some hitches, a lot of them. But also, as we know, some legendary filmmaking and special effects decisions. Filming lasted roughly 12 weeks, beginning in August of 1981, and took place mostly on refrigerated sets in Los Angeles, but also as well in Juneau, Alaska, and Stewart, British Columbia. Filming, by all accounts, was grueling. Prior to filming The Thing, John Carpenter took two weeks during pre-production for his actors to become acquainted with one another and build rapport. The plan worked seamlessly for the on-screen chemistry, but Carpenter allegedly felt the cast's camaraderie made them hard to deal with at times, and all the paranoia and distrust of each other was a vital component of his conceptualization of the film. And he was strongly against remaking the thing from another world. He didn't want to make that film again, wanting to lean heavily on creating a new idea that was more faithful to the short story and also feature aggressive special effects 
and monster creation. The studio had other ideas. After the thing was greenlit, Universal projected the film would cost about $8 million total. They envisioned John Carpenter as an independent filmmaker who could make a big film on a small budget. After all, this was his first studio film. And he would uh, work on a smaller budget. But Carpenter went back and forth with the studio over money, continually throughout pre-production. Even towards the end of the film, Carpenter personally begged for an extra $100,000 to finish the effects. Universal had initially budgeted $200,000 for what they termed quote-unquote creature effects. After negotiations, the filmmakers were approved to go into production with a final cost of about $12.4 million. Overhead costs brought the entire film to $15 million. During production, Carpenter would use DP Dean Cundy from Halloween, uh, and he would go on to be a cinematographer or DP on many of Carpenter's films, including Halloween 2 and 3, Escape from New York, The Fog, Big Trouble in Little China, and many, many other things, including being a DP on Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Back to the Future Part 2 and 3 and Jurassic Park and Apollo 13. Quite a career. Also, despite the fact we know how great of a composer John Carpenter is, the thing is actually the thing theme is actually composed by the great Ennio Morcone, who passed away this past July, and was a five-time Oscar nominee for his work with Sergio Leone, including making the incredible, the good, the bad, and the ugly theme, one of the most recognizable themes in the world. The score for the thing was nominated for a Razzie. When all is said and done, during domestic release, the film made less than $20 million domestic box office. Part of the budget was to go to the absolutely insane practical work by 22-year-old Robert Botton. It's often been repeated that a lot of the work was by legendary special effects expert Stan Winston, who's brought on, but he completely disregards that he did most of the work. He refused a credit on the film and stated that the work was all Rob and he just assisted. One can look to the genius of his effects for the film to one of the most famous scenes in the thing and how it was achieved. Dr. Copper attempts to revive Norris with a defibrillator. This effect was achieved by bringing in a double amputee as a stand-in wearing a prosthetic mask to make him appear to look like Richard Dysart's Dr. Copper. The man wearing the mask is also wearing prosthetic arms made out of wax bones, rubber veins, and jello, which a metal clamp embedded in the fake body rips away during the scene in a gruesome, bloody effect. This type of work on the 22-year-old played a heavy burden on him, and he ended up being sent when the film was finished to the hospital for exhaustion, pneumonia, and a bleeding ulcer. This is just one small example of some of the effects of things that happened in this film. Kurt Russell, for example, almost died when he threw a live stick of dynamite and misjudged the force, which blew him backwards. This shot is left in the film, and you can see it today. To make the beast appear especially viscous, Rob Bond covered it in a substance that happened to be flammable. Bond says after he applied it, John Carpenter wanted, for continuity's sake, for flames to be burning directly under the camera lens. So Bond set up a fire bar. But the, the room they were filming in was filled with dangerous fumes. And when the fire was ignited, the replica burst, engulfing the entire room. 
This is in part because of the thing being filmed mostly indoors, either on sets in British Columbia or at the Universal lot in August. All the snow-heavy scenes were filmed in Juneau, Alaska. As a phenomenal as that footage appeared, the crew had to double their equipment, essentially because it was too cold to bring in the cameras outside back inside and too cold to bring the ones inside back out, doubling the amount of equipment necessary. And as I said, filming primarily took place in August. So in order to get the cold environment they needed, Universal has suggested renting cold storage lockers rather than turning up the AC on the sound stages and filming in ice houses. The idea amounted to putting cast and crew in a giant freezer for months, along with assorted incendiary devices, goo, and flamethrowers. In the end, Carpenter just filmed on the soundstage and achieved the frosty breath by filling his stage area with air conditioning units and increasing the humidity. The film also was hard on some of the animals, including Jed, one of the wolves, who was used during the initial scenes in the film. The set was frequently locked down when he was present, as he wasn't accustomed to people being around. In fact, the scene in which the dog travels through the base and bumps into every member of the crew took two weeks to rehearse on its own so he could feel comfortable on set. There was also a bus ride in Anchorage that almost took out the entire crew as it slipped close to the edge of a mountain on ice. In the end, Carpenter compiled a rough cut of the film and realized it didn't really live up to his standards. He was essentially left with a conglomeration of scenes in which actors stood around and talked, occasionally interrupted by the monster. Rather than soldiering on, Carpenter re-edited his rough cut into something well-paced, writing new scenes to bridge together his existing footage. The new scenes both explained the action and transformed McCready into a compelling main character. Per Stuart Cohen, quote, The early scenes with the men were endlessly repetitive and dragged on forever. Most of the byplay and humor fell flat. The film felt formless and seemed to drift along, no one character breaking out of the pack to drive action. With this time on his hands, Carpenter proceeded to edit the film down to its bare essentials and cut anything that interrupted the pace. He then wrote new scenes that bridged those scenes that he liked so he could shoot them in British Columbia and even a little on the Universal lot. Since the new pages were never worked into the script, Carpenter had to explain to the cast and crew what he wanted. While it shouldn't have worked, Carpenter managed to patch together both old and new scenes into a successful and memorable film, unquote. Unfortunately, when the film came out, neither critics nor audiences agreed. Carpenter suggested this might be because it opened up only two weeks after E.T., I made a really grueling, dark film, he said, and I just don't think audiences in 1982 wanted to see that. They wanted to see E.T., and the thing was the opposite. Critics fired on the film as well. I'm going to read you a review from Roger Ebert at the time because I love to just needle Roger Ebert. The thing is a great barf bag movie, all right, but is it any good? I found it disappointing for two reasons, the superficial characterization and the implausible behavior of the scientists on that icy outpost. Characters have never been Carpenter's strong point. He says he likes his movies to create emotion in his audience, and I guess he'd rather see us jump six inches than get involved in the personality of his characters. The thing is basically, then, just a geek show, a gross-out movie, in which teenagers can dare one another to watch the screen. There's nothing wrong with that. 
I like being scared, and I was scared by many scenes in the thing, but it seems clear that Carpenter made his choice early on to concentrate on the special effects and the technology and to allow the story and people to become secondary. Because this material has been done before and better, especially in the original thing in an alien, there's no need to see this version unless you are interested in what the thing might look like while starting from anonymous greasy organs extruding giant crab legs and transmuting itself into a dog. Amazingly, I'll bet that thousands if not millions of moviegoers are interested in seeing just that. Unquote. Part of the bleakness of the film is, of course, the ending of the film, which is legendarily ominous and open. Many believe Keith David's uh, character has been assimilated, pointing towards his willingness to consume the alcohol McCready gives him, as if McCready is infected. Drinking from the same bottle can cause infections, as is pointed out earlier in the film, a single cell can cause that infection. Also, there is no breath seen coming from his mouth in the cold Arctic air, which is readily available from McCready's mouth. Of course, we never learn in the film proper what happens to McCready. However, there was an alternative ending shot where he is rescued and tested and comes back negative that Carpenter had planned to use if he got negative feedback in the original ending of the film, which thankfully never happened. This does mimic the Dark Horse comic release, though, which follows directly from the end of the film, where we find out McCready is still alive, rescued by a Japanese research vessel. So, during our pandemic, Alex, let's yes. talk about, in my opinion, one of the best infection movies of all time, John Carpenter's The Thing. What do you say? For, for sure. I was, it's funny because just this past week, uh, my wife and I have been watching sort of infection movies or, or so, somewhat off the beaten path infection movies. At first it started by accident. We just happened to watch two in a row. And then I was like, let's keep this trend going. And it culminated <laughs> tonight with the uh, thing. What, what would you start with? Do you remember? Uh, we started with the movie, the children. I don't mm. know if you've seen it. Uh, uh yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah. And then we did, uh, let me think what was after that. It was, it was just a week of, of bizarre infection stuff. Uh, oh, we, we did uh, 28 Days Later. Oh, we yeah. did um, – some could argue The Fly is an infection movie. Mm, but it, it, it's 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 more a metaphor for other things like aging. And some people thought uh, – you know, funny enough, we, we mentioned earlier, some people thought The Thing actually was about the AIDS crisis yeah. as well. But um, – and we watched Wreck and Pontypool and Demons and The Crazies. Nice. The Wreck's a great, Wreck's a great film. Um, yeah, um, I just wanted to point out, yeah, in, the thing, in this famous scene in The Thing where they're testing the blood, there is an STD poster behind McCready, um, which does, you know, point to that a little bit, right? Um, I think it's, you know, I think it probably is using a lot of different things in the film, including the idea of that, right? I think it's direct allegory to that necessarily, but I do think it is a neat one for the idea of an alien infection, right? Oh, for um, sure. Yeah, but I don't think it's like, I mean, I guess you could say to Roger Ebert's that Alien is sort of an infection movie too, at least in the early going of it before it burst, the, the chest burster scene, right? For sure. Um, but it's more of a, to me, that's more of a, like a haunted house film than it is a paranoia thriller like The Thing is, you know? Yeah, the, the chest burster is just, the conceit, like how do you kick off 
setting this as like a haunted house movie and it's like right. oh the chestburster is disgusting and 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 is Amazing. for sure uh, yeah an allegory for something but uh <laughs> it uh, you know the, everything's an allegory but it's it's more just the inciting incident for them to kick off yeah, yeah like you said the, the haunted house in space right um, which is a great idea, but it's just not the yeah. So I just really and I also think if you've have you ever seen the original film, the, the uh, film? a long time ago. It's yeah. one of those ones where I've put it on multiple times, like later at night, and I've fallen asleep every time I've put it on just because uh, I have a hard time falling as like staying awake late at night during black and white movies. I don't mm. know if it's something about it. It just lulls me to sleep. But uh, I was actually looking at, I have the, the special edition laser disc of the, the thing from another world. And it actually has the, the original short story who goes there as yeah. like a special feature. You can read it frame by frame on the disc and it has all this stuff. And yeah, it's, uh, it's the, the parts of it that I remember seeing are, it's, 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 it's well-made. It's, yeah, it's Howard yeah, it's Hawks. It's yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not the, it's not as good as John Carpenter's the thing though. So I don't, you know, that's, that is such a bizarre criticism, I think, especially the film. And I think we should start here, right? Well, I, I also want to talk about before, before we start there, just like what 1982 looked like in terms of films. I mean, 1982 is a landmark science fiction, horror, fantasy genre filmmaking year right oh for sure it's one of the biggest summers for movies ever like i've heard people argue there's no better summer for movies than i think it was like 82 and and 84 but 82 i think was 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 wrath of khan 82 <laughs> yeah right okay so we have blade runner we have et as i mentioned previously we have poltergeist we have paul schrader's remake of cat people which i think is a phenomenal film conan the barbarians that year the, the original Creep Show is that year. The Dark Crystal is that year. Part 3 of Friday the 13th. Halloween 3 is also that year. Slumber Party Massacre is that year. Wes Craven's Swamp Thing. Tron and Wrath of Khan are all that year. And that's just some stuff. I mean, there's more stuff there. Oh, crazy. But that's like, that's a lineup. Like, man, in a year where I can't even go to the movie theaters, I'm extra jealous of that. Yeah. Summer. Yeah. You know, just to be able, just same year, Blade Runner, Poltergeist, and if it was just a year where Blade Runner, Poltergeist, and The Thing came out, it would still be one of the best summers of all time. Oh, you know what sure. I mean? Like, yeah. you add everything else into that, including Tron, right? Because Tron, you know, some people may hate on Tron now, but it was still a, from a special effects standpoint, um, melted people's faces off. Oh, for sure. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's one of those movies where I've always quite enjoyed Tron, uh, I get why people don't like it. That I'll admit, like the story is super weak. It but is weak. I, yeah. I I went to see it in the theater. They did like a digital film fest at the Cineplex, like the the big Canadian theater chain, a couple years ago, and they showed Tron. And I will say, if you see Tron in a theater, you forget all the stupid story stuff because it is <laughs> so impressive to watch yeah. on the big screen that I had like I had a blast seeing Tron, and I can understand why kids who saw Tron in the theater grew up to become like really cool filmmakers and obsessed yeah. with stop motion or rotoscoping or, or cell animation or, or CGI. Like it's just that movie is, is, is beautiful and wonderful. So speaking of stop motion, um, Randall cook came on to the thing also to do another scene that you can find online, which is really cool. Cook is like a stop motion, um, 
animator who did, did work on like the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Gate, Ghostbusters, Q, Fright Night, right? And fans of this show will know by the Crater Lake monster. <laughs> but there's a scene where uh, McCready battles uh, Blair as the thing in a stop motion, which was cut because Carpenter didn't like that you could see it was stop motion, but it's, t- it's super cool. Like, awesome. it comes up like a giant pillar, and it opens up, and, like, dog heads come out of the... It's super cool. That's um, awesome. So it's on... It is... You can find it on YouTube. It's totally worth checking out. But I think, going back to what I was going to say before, I think this film... Of course, the special effects are amazing, but this film really works because of the characters, quite honestly. I think you do care about these characters. At least I do. Part of that, I think, is... Kurt Russell's amazing, and this uh-huh. cast is amazing. Right. Oh, for sure. And so um, I think that criticism really falls flat for me because I think we do learn a lot about these characters through the things that they do. And, yeah, there's not a lot of stopping here to do um, exposition, but I think you just understand the personalities of these characters as we move through the film, you know? Yeah, for sure. They set up some of them as a little over the top or or uh silly or or creepy just so right off the bat it's like oh okay you've got palmer who's like he's smoking a joint in like the first two or three <laughs> like palmer. scenes you see him he's just like obsessively smoking weed um uh Nalls is is on his roller skates mm-hmm. uh rolling around the kitchen um uh you got um what's his uh, gary the, the he's memorable if no, if for nothing else but for like his his uh ghostly white eyebrows on his <laughs> on his bizarre face yeah uh, you you've <laughs> nice. got you've got doc copper with a nose wow. ring which i did not notice until i saw the movie i saw a 35 millimeter print about 10 years ago at a revival theater in toronto that was it was going pink cuz it was an original print but i was like oh my god doc copper has a nose ring Every time I had watched it, it had been on, like, you know, a small TV. So I, I just had never noticed it because it's right near the, the back of his nose. But I'm like, holy crap. Doc Copper's just this weird badass dude who has a nose ring. Like, Do whatever. Do you think it would freeze in Antarctica, though? Like, you probably might uh, not. Who knows? I mean, uh, yeah. I always wondered if it was like a, an, I know some people, it's like, oh, it could be like an antibacterial thing. Who knows? Like, he thinks maybe having the gold in him. Uh, I don't know. But, uh. No, like yeah. it's in, and uh, you've got Childs who is who is just is Keith David who's like a oh, a, a big bald black guy that you're not yeah. gonna forget. Like they do a really good job of making almost everybody memorable. Windows with his with his curly hair and just being the radio guy. Uh, uh, Blair, um, which that is Richard Mouser. Yeah, Wilfred Brimley, of course. And yeah. you also have Clark, like with the the wolves and things like that. You know. Yeah. Um, and his reaction to, like, the Norwegian shooting at the wolves and stuff like that is, is um, just instantly recognizable, right? Like, you get a – you don't need a ton of exposition because the story is relatable to you, right? Like, the whole point is you can see yourself in so many of these characters, right? Yeah. Um, and it's just – you know, it, the paranoia aspect of it is just so memorable, you know yeah um and they're they're easily identifiable without being one note 
Yes, correct. Like, yeah. Which is the 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 really nice thing about it. Like they're not just they're not all just stereotypes. They're not all just defined by one thing. Like that's how they're sort of introduced, just so that you remember right off the bat that they're each different. But then they they all grow from there. So it's it's a really neat way for uh, the the carpenter did that because I was earlier today I was reading uh, Who Goes There mm-hmm. because it's one of those things where I'm like oh I've I've always meant to read Who Goes There. And it's it's crazy that like in the original story, there's at the camp, there's like 30, 32 or 37 guys. Yeah. And that I, I mean, you, you really only get like 10 of their names or whatever. The rest of them are just sort of faceless. I like the carpenter did. Obviously, budget wise and story wise, you don't need that yeah. many people to make the story work. But it's uh, it's interesting to see that. uh yeah, like the, a lot of the exposition of the story is just like, oh, and so-and-so did this, and they're this kind of person. And it's so great that, yeah, Carpenter figured out a way to be like, no, I can get through all of that with just like little scenes tying everybody together at the beginning that just fires it off right away. Yeah, and you, you, totally. Um, and, and that's a really cool short story if you haven't read that. It's it's a really neat short story. I, I would definitely recommend checking that out. That's a, not a bad Halloween read, actually. Sure, it's it's not that long. I think it's forty yeah. pages, yeah. and I mean, you can if you really want to get all into it. I was reading that I guess last year, uh, or I think it was a couple years ago. One of his biographers or somebody who had to do with his estate found out that he had originally written uh, "Who Goes There" as a a, a novel length book, and Whoa. he had sent it to the Harvard archives for preservation, or he'd sent it somewhere to Harvard where it had just been in a box at Harvard for years, somebody found this original, like, that he ended up cutting down to be the short story to be published. I think it was in, like, Astonishing or Amazing Tales of Science or one of those Mm -hmm. uh, magazines. He had cut it down for that, but he had originally written it as a novel, and they found the original manuscript, and I think they did a Kickstarter to, uh, to, so you could get it as an e-book or get it as an actual book, and I think it had, like, a $1,000 goal, and it made 151,000 on, on Kickstarter. So is yeah. it available? I think so. I think you can get an ebook wow. of yeah, the original the full length book. But uh, the the nice thing is yeah, if you, if you don't want to, you know, go that far, yeah. the the abridged story is it, it's great. Like it's 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 interesting that I've seen the thing a bunch of times and I didn't notice certain things until I read who goes there. Yeah. Like the idea that when McCready makes his his recording and he's he's talking like, oh, you know, like that we found these shredded long johns and, and all this mm-hmm. stuff. And then the next scene is uh, them thinking like, oh, McCready's long johns are ripped up. It's because the, they established sort of in the story that and it makes sense that the, the thing is technically it's it's telepathic. It knows what everybody in the camp allegedly is thinking which makes it make sense where it's like McCready's in there alone recording that they don't establish anybody's overhearing him in the hallway. But the very next scene is somebody trying to frame McCready for having the, the torn clothes. Yes. And, yes. and it's, it's interesting because you just, you don't think about it, but it would have to be psychic for it to know when it's taking over somebody, all of their thoughts, all of the stuff that's going on. So it's playing. And it's funny that the first scene we see of McCready is him playing chess and because this thing can read his mind it's like this weird chess game where he's playing against the computer that's better than him that's 
two steps ahead because it can read everybody's thoughts. And I'm like, I didn't pick up on this. I didn't even really think about the psychic thing until I read this short story. And of course, he famously pours the liquor on the computer and destroys it, right? Yes. In that scene. Voiced by Adrian Barbo, right? Yes, you... the only the only uh, lady in, in the film. Yeah. Who was married to John Carpenter at the time, I believe. Yeah, I think she had just been in uh, Escape from New York mm. and uh, the, the Fog. She's the, I think she's the DJ in The, the Fog. Yes. Uh, yeah. The Fog's a great movie, too. But, oh, so, um, <laughs> so good. You know, I think people give a lot of credit, and rightfully so, to Kubrick for, like, the way he sets up The Shining and it being confounding how, like, you can turn from one room to another and nothing really adds up or makes sense, right? Yeah. And I think that element is present in the thing with the mystery that's at the center of it, as you said, right? In order for some of these things to happen, the thing would have to be have to be uh, telepathic, right? Like, yeah. some of the things almost don't add up. They sort of do in your head, but they also seem like... Could that actually happen? Like, I mean, I don't think we ever have a clear understanding of how Dr. Blair gets infected, right? All the things he does with leading up to it makes sense for a guy who's like, we have to all die here, right? Yeah. We yeah. need to die here to save the world, right? That's like the, the idea he has. And then suddenly he's built a spaceship, right? Yeah. And it's like, how did this happen if he was locked up? And I'm, and I'm sure that there's a moment that someone can point to. Um, and, this, and there's definitely been some hypotheses I've seen. But it really, to me, is just so confounding that you really can't put the f- timeline together, right? No. It's, Rationally, necessarily, right? It makes me wonder if, did he dig down or did the thing dig up to get him? Because... There, we only saw the one way into that to the cavern was down through the floor. Right. But was there another way in, and that's how it got in? Some people I've heard theorize that he gets infected because when he's showing, when they're doing the the autopsy, he's got the pencil with like the 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 eraser on the end, and he's pointing at things with the eraser, and then he touches the eraser to his lips. His mouth. Yeah. Yeah. So I've oh. heard some people say that yeah, it could have but been super does... gradual. <laughs> fair but he does a bunch of stuff after that like i think after that is him destroying the radio and stuff like that right yeah that stuff happens after he's done that so if he was in maybe a a, a particle that small takes time to take root you know we don't really know you know a, a lot about the thing which is interesting right you know which makes it scarier i think you know i think in the comic books and uh I haven't read all the comics. I just went through like the the um, I just went through in preparation for this, looking and reading through the the timeline of those events. But it really tries to quantify the thing, right, and put rules around it, such as like it can't it can adapt to any um, animal, but not plant matter, right? It cannot um, pierce the cellular walls of plants, right? Which you know I guess sort of makes sense, right? But as soon as you start putting all of these things together about the thing, I think it really detracts from the film. You know, I, I just think if you were to put and start explaining all of the characteristics of it, you don't need it, you know? Yeah. I mean, it. I, I get where some people might criticize it being like, it's a movie that sometimes doesn't play by its own rules because what is the thing? Like, is it just, does it, if, if something is a thing, does it know that the other ones are a thing? <laughs> 
Like it, like it, yeah. it, certain aspects of it are complicated, but I would argue like it's meant to be complicated because right. this is like the biggest scientific discovery man has ever made. And it's supposed to be like it, it, it going back to the short story. The whole argument is in, in, in the, in the story, they don't, it's not, there is no Norwegian camp. They are the ones who found the ship. They found the the thing. They brought it back, and it was arguing whether or not to to thaw it out, right? Because they're like, oh, you know, it's 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 a higher life form. There's no way if you unfreeze it, it'll still be alive. It it it's it's not like a fish or something where it's a a, a, a limited uh, uh, organism. It's it's right. a it's a living. It's a thinking creature. So there should be no reason to to worry about defrosting it, and then of course they thaw it out, and it tries to take over a dog, and it does all that stuff. Yeah. But yeah, it's 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 just such a it's a neat way for them to have set it up. I like the Norwegian camp. I like the the mystery of like what happened here. I mean, you, the 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 prequel movie sort of answers what happened here, but yes, um, which is sort of the problem as well, right? Yeah, like you, you, you have to, you have to stick the landing. You have to make it. Every scene has to lead up to that scene of them going there. So somebody has to slit their wrists and have the front of their neck cut out. There has to be all the paperwork on the floor. There has to be, uh, yeah, just that you have to, you have to line up with so many things. You're not gonna, you're gonna do your best not to retcon if you're trying to make a prequel that you know to a to a now beloved classic. I think a prequel is a really hard thing to do well, right? I, I, because, A, you know how it ends, right? You already know what the end of it is, right? So there's yeah. no mystery there, yeah. right? And as you said, there's so many elements that you have to get in place that it also almost just becomes a procedural, right? We see that, of course, with famously with the you know Star Wars prequels, right? You're just checking off a whole bunch of boxes of things that people are expecting to have happened. Yeah. As opposed to creating an interesting story, you know? For sure. And I mean, it's it's funny because you think about those and all that they had uh, fully established when you talk about Star Wars, the original trilogy is like, okay, we know that there used to be a lot more Jedi and we know that there's something called the Clone Wars. And that's pretty much all we know about the past. Yeah. And then that's what George Lucas is like, okay, we've really got to focus on the Clone Wars. And I'm like, what a weird throwaway line that he yeah. could have he could have written anything and he just goes like, Yeah, Clone Wars, whatever. Yeah. And then I mean, that was I... that was what he ended up being stuck with. And not I shouldn't say stuck with. He definitely made it work to an extent, even though I would say Attack of the Clones is the worst Star Wars movie. But uh, you know. Oh yes, of course. But you know, I could talk about the prequels and that's another show. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I just think that, you know, that 2011 film suffers from that. And, you know, you're you're coming into a Thing movie and you are expecting rad practical effects. And that's like the thing you want from a Thing film, right? Yep, 100%. And, you know, today you just can't – doesn't happen, you know, like that. You know, you're not going to get the budget to do that when <laughs> when you have computer CGI available. You know what I mean? Unless you're working completely independently and you're independently wealthy or you found, you know, so, you know, I sort of think this film is lightning in a bottle in a way, you know, yeah, it's it's right time. It's crazy that it that it did work because, yeah, like you said, Carpenter had done he did what he did Halloween. Then he did the the fog. Well, he did Elvis. 
that TV Elvis movie. Then mm-hmm. he did The Fog. Then he did Escape from New York. Then he did The Thing. Right. So it's like, what a all, what a run all, there of movies. Well, and all those previous films are not studio films, right? So yeah. Um, which is crazy to me with the fog. Like the fog has such cool effects. Like you can sort of see Halloween like doesn't really necessarily rely on effects the way like the fog does. You know, he had done Assault on Precinct Thirteen too, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, man, that is quite a run. It's, and the thing I just think is such a difficult film to replicate in terms of the things that work in it, right? So, first of all, just incredible effects. One of one of the most charismatic leads of all time. And I, I don't know if you could account as Kurt Russell as being a great actor. I don't know. I think you could argue about that or not. But he's certainly one of the most watchable film stars of all time. Doing oh, for anything. sure. To, um, to, to think that he went from being Disney child star... Uh, where he was even the you know the the last thing that Walt Disney ever wrote down before he died was Kurt Russell's name that was on a little slip of paper that was on his desk uh, that nobody knows why he wrote it down and that he went from being the assassin a, he was he, to... he, he, I always equate him he I think he's the Zac Efron of his era and I hope that <laughs> Zac Efron becomes the the Kurt Russell of our era because this like handsome charming young guy who was in Disney movies yeah. who grew up and ended up being in really cool movies. Yeah. That's what I hope for Zac Efron. He's he's not doing too bad. He's he's sort of going. He's doing for every Baywatch. He's he's like you know he's actually doing interesting stuff and then doing Baywatch. Like he's he's a a super charming handsome guy making these movies. And I'm like, oh, that's what Kurt Russell like. That's yeah. what he like. He's he's yeah. He's I wouldn't say he's gonna win any uh, uh you know he's not gonna win any Oscars, but he is so charismatic. That you yeah. can't help but watch him, and like my wife, uh, anytime we watch the thing or anything in the '80s with Kurt Russell, she's like, "He's so fucking hot." I'm like, "Yeah, I know. <laughs> you said that last time." She's like, "Yeah, but like, just even with his beard and his long hair in this one, like, he's just so hot." I'm like, "He's still hot." Yeah, I, I, I remember you, you, you mention it every time. <laughs> I mean, he's still hot though. Like, oh, for sure. For and you know, it, it's like that beard is. Uh, a thing of legend as well. Oh. I don't think Zac Efron can uh, duplicate that. I don't um, think. <laughs> yeah, and you know the other actors around. You know, I mean, definitely. I wish we got more Keith David in this film, but you know, it works. He works as like an additional antagonist, sort of, right? Yeah, a human antagonist, which I think is really smart and interesting. And um, a lot of the things Child says are real, like just makes sense, right? I do think you can levy a criticism as these scientists don't act like scientists, right? Per se, necessarily. But, you know. Yeah. Who knows how you're going to react in this situation? Exactly. That was the other thing, like, the nice thing about if if you read who goes there, understanding that, like, what is MacReady? And in the story, they're like, oh, MacReady's the meteorologist. Like, he he's there. That's why he's in his own shack. And if you look, it's got like weather stuff on the top because yeah. he's there to keep track of the weather. That's his job. Blair is the biologist, and that's why right. he's the one that goes crazy. Because although Doc Copper and other characters do have a science and and medical background, he's a true biologist, and he's the one who it's funny was initially in favor of thawing out 
the thing saying that it isn't going to harm anybody in the in the story and then that ends up being the the problem that he he was so much for it and then he realizes like i've made a huge mistake i'm going to destroy any way possible for us to get out of here and then it makes me wonder because they mentioned the one thing that i think would have been cool if they had taken it from the story and put it in the movie is that the way they established that the thing is uh telepathic is that when they're bringing the frozen thing back to thaw out they're they're traveling from like right at the south pole to their base and they keep uh going to sleep and having nightmares about the thing thawing out and replicating people and trying to take over the base and they all have the same nightmare and they realize that the thing is telepathic that way because they're all having this nightmare which makes me wonder was the thing somewhat influencing blair to be like no let it thaw out because blair was the one who was with it on the way back and then once interesting once that it's dethawed and everything he realizes like oh maybe i was under the influence of this thing and that's why he goes so crazy that's like, really interesting there's yeah. there's little things like i think anybody who loves this movie really should like you can you can bang out that that short story and yeah like an hour totally or two. it's yeah. it's it's not a very long read but there's little hints that I think are so huge in it that like it really heightened my appreciation of the film this time around just having like those little hints to go like knowing that that was in the source material like even if it didn't translate to the screen just being like oh that makes a little more that makes this scene make a little more sense or this character's uh reasoning make a little more sense so yeah we talked a little bit about how like other iterations of the thing would be extremely difficult. Talk a little bit about the comic books. I did want to bring up that in the tie into the 2011 film, there was a comic released by also, I think it was all Dark Horse. Yeah, it was also Dark Horse called The Northman Nightmare. And the idea of that comic is the landing of the spaceship in Greenland, right? During Viking times. So in other words, they're grappling with the thing with just like axes and torches and no understanding of science. And I think that's a really interesting idea. I don't know how popular that would be with like mainstream audiences, but, and I think it's probably the type of thing that should be relegated because of that to comics. But I just think that's a really interesting concept, right? I mean, the thing we, it's easy to forget. I think about the thing is that it landed in Antarctica. I I think they say hundred thousand years ago, right? Yeah. And man, you will forget, at least me, every time the shot of that saucer, that like almost cheesy 50s spaceship that's just frozen in ice. And it's every time for me, I've seen this film a hundred times, how shocking that shot is. Yeah. At least to me, because I I always remember all the other things that happen in the film. But that just that spaceship, it's like, I can't believe that shot is in the film. Yeah, such a um, bizarre po- like so pre pre credit scene. Like, yeah, it's it's I, I get why he puts it in there to establish it. I don't think it's fully necessary, but I do like that it gives you the backdrop for him to do the 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 flaming uh, the 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 way they do the titles. Where it's I think my oh, friend so told cool. me where you fill an aquarium with smoke and you put a black garbage bag in it and you light the garbage bag on fire or something and it burns up and that's how they do the words the thing like it's that's, yeah it's, this, cool. it's a crazy practical effect that like that's what they did because i think that's how the title comes up for the thing from another world and, yes. and yes. carpenter wanted to yeah. yeah 
Um, it, well, I think that I think the the saucer shot as well is in the film because it's an homage, right? So that makes sense. Um, yeah. So, well, I mean, I also think it just works in the film. Like the things that are shocking to me is just how far it goes. Do you know what I mean? Like the bizarreness of it, you know, and how bizarre it would be to us as humans to see a creature that operates that way is sort of the scary part to me, right? Aside from the paranoia is just like when the head comes off and grows legs and just starts walking around, it's shocking because it's so, it just breaks the, the norm, you know? Yeah. And, and I get as uh, like to the other point of, of like them having the, the thing like living and, and them not acting like scientists, like, not wanting to burn the thing like oh we're just gonna keep the the corpse in this empty storeroom uh where it's like yeah if 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 you discovered the concrete proof of of life from another world and this alien spaceship and all this stuff like how could you as a scientist in good conscience even knowing if it's a danger to you be like oh we're just gonna burn it all and like yeah. people will just have to take our word for it like i understand the first half of the movie them being you know hesitant hesitant to burn this even even at the beginning of the movie where it's like these these dudes flew in on a helicopter trying to shoot this dog why do you guys just not question the fact that this dog is is hanging out like wouldn't your first question be like maybe it has some weird rabies what are they doing over at that base right what what's the deal with this dog and the fact that like yeah the i get it it's it's the setup for the movie but the fact that, yeah, I would say that's the, I mean, the most scientists being like, what's going on? Like, why would you just let this this random dog that could have, like, you know, the, the rage virus from 28 Days Later? Like, you, <laughs> you don't know. Why would you let this dog just hang out? And, yeah. and I, I understand. The dude goes crazy and then shoots them. But Well, I think that that's why that, you know, I, I think... I think that's why that that character is so important as like the lover of dogs and things like that and the caretaker of the dogs, right? Yeah. You know, he's basically the cuz the rest of them are sort of like what the fuck fuck this dog, right? Yeah. And he's like, "No, I'm going to take care of put it in with the other dogs. It'll be fine," right? Yeah. You know, so I, I think Richard Miles' character is important for that aspect, right? And of course, he's the fur in that scene in the cage, man. Is just so never ceases over all the years I've seen this film and just how crazy wet disgusting and bizarre it is it's almost like that and like the head turning into the crab is so outlandish like you almost want to laugh yeah you know you almost like well, this is so crazy what am I looking at yeah. right and then like as it progresses it gets so more and more bizarre that you're just like gobsmacked <laughs> yeah by the creativity and the horror right and that way it's sort of like lovecraftian you know mm-hmm. you know and of course this is part of that trilogy the end of the world trilogy of carpenters right yeah um this uh prince of darkness and in the mouth of madness and there's stuff in in the mouth of madness that definitely is close to like bizarre as this is oh for um, sure when he sees the the puzzle or the the torn page and you see like the 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 ancient ones or whatever you want to call those cthulhu demons like coming through they almost look like blair at the end of the movie like they almost look like weird mutant demon monster things like it's it's uh yeah Uh, that's a great film in prince of darkness is a great film too 
all three of those films I think are some of Carpenter's best because of how weird they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, man, like how how he accomplished that. Um, Rick, um, you know, Rob Batten, um accomplished that defibrillator scene. Yeah, is crazy to me. Oh, for sure. Like the fact that yeah, like you mentioned, a double amputee. So the guy who had no, nothing below his his uh, his wrists or, or below his elbows, his elbows or whatever, yeah. yeah. And the fact that they 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 crafted like wax arms and and, and everything. <laughs> wax said, like, jello arms. Yeah. Wax like, bones surrounded by jello and vein with veins in it. That's, that's insane. That's just so cool. Like I, I I'm all for when CG is done well. I'm all for it. But like. When people used to have to get creative and find solutions, like okay, we need a guy's chest cavity to open up and teeth to bite off a guy's arms, and like, <laughs> the fuck are you talking? And like, I can't imagine being yeah, like you said, twenty-two-year-old Rob Bowden, Bowden, and just like, okay, uh, do we know any like double amputees that we could? Okay, and what if and like, you know, I I, I I've had good. Uh, luck doing stuff with like this this weird jello wax stuff like let's let's see if we can make it work like that is crazy it is bananas it is a bananas idea in the way you know it's bananas i it's a bananas idea but it's executed so well and the fact that i never would have guessed in a hundred years he was wearing a prosthetic face like i thought for sure that was the actor doing some the the original actor you know i don't know if you get a 4k and you look at it and you can see and it looks a little weird like a 4k version of this but like i have would never have guessed in 100 years that was a different person it just looks like he's doing like a like a shocked or like a like a like a screaming in in pain face because like yeah we watched it in my i have the 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 4k scan the newest blu-ray uh and watched it in my home theater on like a hundred inch screen and like, if you really look, you can just tell like, oh, that doesn't fully look like like a face. But at the same time, you're not looking at that. You're looking at the stumpy arms at the time. Like it's 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 still mm. it still passes. Like you, it just looks like he's contorted in pain because the next scene they cut to is the close up of his face contorted in pain. So you're like, oh, okay, yeah, it's just your head even just replaces the <laughs> the bad looking pain with the pain you see a second later. Like it's a perfect cut right there to distract you. It's so well edited. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so, so weird. I, I can't wait to watch it again, um, ha- you know, because I did watch it again for this, but I watched it before I did the research on the special effects. I mean, I can't wait to go back to check that scene out again to see if it looks, at, if it's still, that trick works equally well for me. But either way, it's super impressive, especially for the time, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what, what do you... So, what are some of your favorite shots of this in this movie? Because I think that there's so many classic effects and everything. What's your favorite? If you had to select one scene from this movie, that's tough. It's, I know it's hard because like you instantly just want to say the the crab head, but there's certain stuff. I'm trying to think. Early, like when the when the the dog. When it's it does like the tentacles over to like the green dog that's just been like messed up and it and it does all that I'm like that is truly so, disturbing. I feel so bad for those other dogs in that scene. I know it's it's like, so brutal. It's awful. 
I think when uh, when Palmer's head opens up and bites Windows' head, Ugh. and then he like picks him up, and then he I spits him out death. into the desk, yeah. and then Windows is just covered in like blood and goop and and thing juice, uh, just so gross. But that shot is just so cool. Like it's it's a little large Marge when it when it first starts. <laughs> But then it like it just switches over into like being so bloody and 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 great. Like it's crazy to think like like the Evil Dead was eighty one and this was eighty two and like mm. that the Evil Dead was able to do similar looking shots on like that shoestring budget that they were doing in this. Like obviously this movie looks a lot more polished, but like what a great time to be like a a a, a gore a gore fan going to see horror movies like going to see evil dead and then the year later being like man not only did they like do the same sort of thing like they did it with studio money they did it with like a lot bigger budget and like this this uh, just gross looking like it's (laughs) it's such a cool scene i think Um, that's such a that's such an interesting way to put it because that's kind of what i was trying to say and you put it so succinctly like it's almost large marge ish and then it turns horrible like that's like it's so shocking how weird it is, like Large Marge, and then it's like, yeah, man, it just tears away at the layers of like believability. What about you yeah, though? I'm, what's your what's your uh, shot? I, I probably would have said, I mean, that Windows scene. I hate that death so much. Like, I love it and hate it. Like, it's, it. I feel so bad for that character. Like, that is like one of the worst ways to that anyone goes in this film is just that weird head chomping on you yeah um it's so so messed up i mean i think i have to say if i'm gonna think of a scene in this movie it's the blood test scene and the way it goes through and proceeds through like your expectations of who it is one person at a time yeah right until it you know until the the blood itself jumps out like it's a living creature is just a, such a cool effect, you know? And then, you know, in that moment, you know, turning with everyone tied to the chairs together, I just think is so crazy effective. Oh, yeah. Um, it just works so well. Uh, and I think it just sums up what works about this film, right? To the point that one of the most famous games right now, right, is Among Us, which is essentially... You know, mobile game. Everyone's talking. Everyone's playing. Yeah, and that's essentially the thing, right? Yeah, you like, have that's to the... say who's the 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 bad guy, right? Like it's that, that's the yeah. whole point of the game. That's the whole point of the game, and like it's an alien killing people, right? Yeah, like, that's the whole idea of that that game. And you know, there was also the thing, um, first person shooter game that came out. I don't know if you've ever have you ever played that. Uh, well, the two thousand two I... game. I don't know if it was a. First person shooter, the, the the PS2 one. Oh, I'm sorry, it's a third person shooter. Yeah, it's a yes, third yes, person. Yes, yes, yes. It's a third person shooter. Yeah, yeah, I have it for the PlayStation 2. It's uh, yeah. it's neat because you it picks up like you're. I think you're a, a rescue crew or something, and yes. it's it's at it's after the end of the movie, so you're wandering through the camp and like they've done their best to recreate the way the camp is at the end when it's all on fire and and like when it's all been exploded. So it's it's neat to uh, it's it's. It's not like a, an amazing game, but it's it's really neat where in the early 2000s there, it was sort of like, well, we're never going to get a sequel for this. What if we just did sort of like a game yeah. sequel? Because they did that. They did um, 
it's funny we were talking about Tron earlier. They did Tron 2.0 was a PC game that was until Tron Legacy was made was considered the canonical sequel for for Tron. That at the time it was just like, well, if it you know, bef- back before anybody could have ever imagined what you know, big Hollywood blockbusters and Disney buying everything and people trying to remake everything and whatever would have been. Uh, that it's like, yeah, well, it's this sort of love thing. What if we get a decent game company and make a cool game just to be the sequel? Like even even yeah. Evil Dead, they they did uh, uh, what was it? Um, Fistful of Boomstick, and uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I forget the other one. But like they did two Xbox games that were supposed to be sort of like sequels to the movies. Um, it was a, it was a neat time to be a gamer and a horror fan in the early 2000s with the PS2 and the Xbox just playing these really cool sequel games and the thing was one I was super excited to get because I want to say the first time I saw the thing was I was hanging out with my best friend and he and I would hang out like every weekend and he was a big horror movie and and movie buff and we would just sort of like because neither of us had a bunch of money it was sort of like, oh, we'll each collect different movies. We're not both going to have the same copy of a movie because then, like, you know, we can just borrow it if we want to watch it. And it was my birthday, and his mom took us to, like, Best Buy and was like, oh, I'll buy you uh, I'll buy you a movie for your birthday. So I remember walking around and looking and coming down to, like, Terminator 2 or The Thing, and he's like, I've got Terminator 2 if you want to borrow it you should get the thing right now. And like Terminator 2, you're not going to have a hard time finding it in the future, but like, who knows? Certain horror movies go out of print sometimes. Like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, fair enough. And I got the thing. And yeah, I think it was for like my 16th birthday uh, from his mom. And I remember going back to one of our houses to watch it and being like, this movie fucking rocks. So yeah. getting the PS2 game, uh, I would have been, this would have been 2003 for me. So that game came out 2002, hearing about it, and uh, I think I got it like a used copy from like uh, the video store or from like EB Games or something and just being like psyched that we could play it. And I remember staying up and, and just, you know, Mac, my buddy Max was like a, he was a really determined gamer. So like I would sometimes get discouraged playing stuff being like, ah, fuck this. And if you gave him the controller, I'd be like, here, you play it. And he'd play for like, 10 hours to try and beat certain things so i'd just be like cool i'm just gonna hang out and drink pop and eat candy and i'll just watch you play so i've i've actively watched the thing game probably more than i've played it but it's 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 neat like it's 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 worth checking out if you have a way to emulate it or if you still have a ps2 it's 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 worth checking out like because there's still no official canonized sequel stuff for the thing there's the prequel obviously but this game is is a neat thing to watch. Yeah, I mean, I think the like I said, the only other thing is like the Dark Horse comics. I don't know if that's even right, official, right. But and that gets really weird um, and a little outlandish. I, you know, and they're really hard to find. Like, I think you would be spending like a hundred bucks to even get a copy of the first issue. Yeah, and I don't think it's available in digital anywhere. So. You know, yeah, you the, mentioned the other la- to me the comics, and I'm like, oh, I got to read those. And I'm like, I cannot find these for the life of me. I'm going to read who goes there. <laughs> <laughs> the the uh, Northman Nightmare, I think, is available like on Dark Horse's digital um, format, but that's the only one. Okay. The, you know, uh, the rest are like, good luck, you know? Yeah. Unless you want to spend a 100 bucks for probably not that great of a 
you know, couple issue comic, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, um, it's funny you should mention, like, the first time you saw the thing, because I feel, like, that's a film I could not even tell you when I first saw it. Like, I feel like it's just, I've just always seen it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it, you know, and I, I'm sure I saw it around the same age, like, 16 or so. You know, because I do think it's a film that requires a little bit older horror view. Like, I don't think there's anything that's, like, so bad for, like, a little bit of a younger audience. But I do think it is predicated on build-up enough that, like, a younger audience wouldn't necessarily appreciate it as much. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, younger than, like, 16 or so. Or late teens. I guess I guess the defibrillator scene is pretty gruesome in the head chomping scene um yeah that one's pretty rough but like even so I, I think what would turn most younger viewers off i think would be just how much is predicated on like paranoia right yeah but yeah i mean yeah any, anything else you want to say about the thing 1982 john carpenter i would say if you've seen it before you should that there's you should always rewatch this movie because every time I see it, a lot of people say this about a lot of movies, but like I do pick up on new things every time. Whereas this time I watched it, I always wondered about like, oh, how did it get to the, the blood supply? But when Windows comes in, when they're clearing out the supply room and uh, the thing has started to take over, uh, is it Bennings or, or whatever his name is, the, the bald redhead? guy who gets shot at the beginning yeah i want to say it's like bennings or or something Bennings sounds right yes but when when windows walks in and he sees that the the bloody clothes or whatever he freaks out and you see him like drop the keys and then he mm -hmm. runs and gets everybody else and then they run outside and find jennings or bennings whatever his name is and then they torch him but it's like that's what happened to the keys they the keys yeah. were there at that point and somebody grabbed them did whatever with the blood and then they ended up getting back to um, to Gary for later when Gary gives the keys to, to to Copper to go check the blood or Fuchs. I forget which one goes to check the blood. But, uh, yeah, that that's when the keys went missing. And I'm like, oh, OK. And and when the dog wanders into the room at the beginning and you don't know which guy it is, I'm pretty sure it's the guy who has the, the heart attack later. Um, yes. Yeah. Because when you keep an eye on him throughout the film, like knowing that there are like close-ups on him or cutaways to him. And I'm like, Oh man, like he was one the entire time, but he goes with them and helps them find the spaceship. Like he, he does things that seem uncharacteristic of something for the thing, but also he's never left alone with anybody. So it's, it, well, it's, I mean, I think there's that shot of the dog going in from a, and it's like the shadow uh, yeah. of him sitting there and it's not really clear who it is. I mean, you could match up close to the yeah, one character or another. Or it, could, it could have been, or it could have been the the yeah heart attack guy, but obviously we know it wasn't Windows because Windows right. was safe up until he got head chomped. So it is neat to go back and like play detective with this movie and try and uh, try and track it yourself. And like I don't always do that because this is a movie where I don't get bored enough to get distracted to 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 try and you know never to try and follow stuff along where I'm like oh this movie moves fast enough. It, it is like you said he he had a rough cut that obviously didn't wasn't fast paced enough and he cut all the scenes that weren't necessary and that's what's great about this it flows so well once it gets going that like oh there's you, yeah 
you don't get distracted being like, oh, this is a boring scene. I guess this is where I can try and mentally figure out who's the thing. It's like that guy just his head turned into a fucking crab. Now they're like burning <laughs> blood. Now there's like a, a head eating a guy. Like uh, yeah. I don't, I, I don't Flame have time. Throwing. I don't have time yeah. to try and figure out who's who. Like all I know is like it's probably not McCready, and that's all I need to know. Everybody else is just you know, is, it's all gravy. But like that's that's what's great that like because it's such an engaging movie you don't you don't sit there worrying about the stuff because it's it it's so well paced and it's so well made that you just you're along for the ride but if you do catch it like when you're watching i'm like oh yeah the keys now that makes a lot more sense or oh yeah i know that guy now those close-ups they keep showing of his face make a lot more sense like it's it's a rewarding movie so i would say yeah even if you've seen it 10 times watch it an 11th time like you're gonna get something else out of it this time and if you've never seen it uh i'll i'll say yeah like it's it's not like there is violence towards animals but it's so over the top that like i don't think it shouldn't really i i like and once you're through that first part in the cage yeah you're good yeah, you're yeah. clear once you're clear you're clear yeah right like you don't it doesn't show blair killing the dogs you just see a dead no. dog with an axe in its throat you don't have to watch that so yeah there's and yeah if the sight of blood bothers you okay this obviously isn't the right movie for you but i would say any there's no other reason really to skip this movie uh it's it's crazy looking at it where like imdb it's got like a great score like in the eights uh rotten tomatoes the the modern day score for it is is like you know 80 something percent but if you look at the metacritic of like the original critical uh reviews for it like you were talking about roger ebert panning it it's got like a 57 when you look at like so weird yeah but like i i I, I get people wanting to be optimistic like at of the early 80s and like oh et was sort of the feel-good movie and but who's walking into that is so bizarre to me you know and there's also in that sorry i mean to cut you off no no yeah no that's i was just gonna say yeah it's 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 crazy that it's it's it was hated in its time but don't (laughs) let don't let critics of the time uh you know color your your expectations like it is actually good i think critics at the time were looking at it with eyes that were that that were just set for the wrong time like i there there shouldn't be a reason why et and you couldn't watch them back to back like the you know incredible film i wouldn't even say that the thing is a better film than et because they're just two different i I don't think you can compare the two things right no you know like uh, they're not in the same world yeah. You know what I mean? Like, E.T. is an incredible film front to back. You should watch that film, too. Yeah. And, like, The Thing, you should watch that film, too. Like, I don't know, though, why you would walk into The Thing, an R-rated film about a monster that kills people. Yeah. Expecting E.T. is so crazy to me. Yeah. You know, and there's this streak in the Roger Ebert review, which is why it shows that one. I also, like I said, love to needle Roger Ebert um, because I think he just has some ridiculous reviews. And... There's a streak in that of, like, of course these stupid people are going to go watch this movie again and again and again. And it's so weird, like, how you could watch the things that happen in this film and just call them grotesque and not incredible achievements from a special effects standpoint, you know? Yeah. You know, even if you were just to take it, even if you hate the story, I don't know how you could watch the crab scene and be like, 
I can't, how did they accomplish that? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like what, what, how did they accomplish the, the, you know, the arm chopping scene? Like, I, I don't know. In just in that regard, I don't know how it didn't get, you know, rave reviews. So I don't know. It's weird to me. Yeah. I, I know I said one more, one more thought, but what are you, what is your definitive viewpoint on the end of this film? It's, uh, I like to think like, I, Obviously, McCready, by the end of it, is not the thing, at least from the journey we saw him take. Mm-hmm. As far as Childs, it is interesting. I've heard people say, like you mentioned at the beginning, that like his his breath, he doesn't really have breath, uh, that McCready laughs when he hands him the drink and he drinks it. I've heard it some people theorize that that McCready actually, it, it wasn't booze. It was one of the Molotov cocktails that he didn't throw. Mm-hmm. Because the thing wouldn't know that alcohol and gasoline are different because it doesn't have that. It, I is mean, that that's true. I don't know. Is I, that true? Doesn't he have all the? Don't they all have the memories? They must have the memories of the people they assimilate, right? In some degree, because they definitely right. know the other people. They know. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's one thing we can surmise we about that. So, like, What's they it? they yeah. don't eat or drink the way we do. So, like, how true. would how would it know the difference of you know, alcohol, sure. which is technically a poison to the body and, and an right. actual poison to the body. So I've heard people theorize that, yes, that he hands him a bottle knowing that there's gasoline in it. And that if the, because I don't know if we see McCready drink of it. McCready never drinks out of it. That's yeah. one of the things that makes it. So the fact that he gives it to Childs and Childs sips it. And that's when he starts chuckling that I, I like to think that, yeah, maybe Childs has become a thing at this point. And McCready's just going to sort of wait him out and then blow them up. I, I, I don't know what he's going to do. Or he knows that by giving it this this uh, uh, this gasoline, like he's actually poisoning it without it even knowing because it is technically a human. It, it is the thing, but it is genetically a human. So maybe giving it gasoline or whatever would kill it. So I don't know. I I know that McCready is, is not the thing and whether or not Childs is... I think Childs is, but either way, like, I think Mac, even if he wasn't, I think Mac would just kill the two of them. Like, I don't know. I don't think he has the gun, mm. but I think he'd realistically try and find a way to kill them by the end. Like, he does seem sort of almost defeated in that last scene. After he chuckles, it almost looks like he lays down in defeat, but he's he's McCready. He's definitely got a plan. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I think, I mean... um it's sort of besides the point to yeah. even <laughs> hypothesize, but yeah, I'm, I'm in total agreement. Like, I think Childs is assimilated, despite what we know about the other stuff, like the comics, which, you know. And I think they both die there. Like, I think that's what Carpenter's going for, right? Yeah. Like, initially, you know, and I know we talked about the recut ending and things like that in case people didn't like it, but I think he... You know, if he didn't intend for it to all end there, he wouldn't have bothered making the alternative ending, right? Yeah. The intent is to say everyone dies, right? The yeah. thing and McCready, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, whether it's by freezing them out, letting them both freeze back to what it is, or he has some plan with a Molotov cocktail or something else, right? Like yeah. he has a gun stashed. I, I think... McCready wins because they both die. Like, I think that's the intent. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 
I, I yeah, you I know? think it's I think it is the the Rogue One ending. Like sometimes mm. everybody dies. Like sometimes yeah. <laughs> that's just how it goes. Right. Yeah. Phenomenal film. You know, I can't imagine anyone who'd listen to this hasn't seen the thing. But if you haven't, so watch it. And if you have seen it, watch it again. You know, it should be on your Halloween playlist, in my opinion, every single year. Oh, for um, sure. You know. And if you if you don't have the the Scream Factory uh, release, I highly recommend trying to find it. I've got mm. the the Steelbook, which is the the newest one, where it's three disc. The first disc is the 2017 4K scan that I think they used for the Arrow print in the UK. And then uh, Scream, because they had already done uh, their version over here, I think they just licensed that print for use in the... I think it's only in the Steelbook that you can get the 4K uh, transfer. But nice. And then, like, Disc 2 is the 2K scan of the Interpositive that was approved by Dean Cundy, a, a commentary by Cundy, commentary by Stuart Cohen, commentary with John Carpenter and Kurt Russell... Uh, all the trailers and TV spots. Um, then there's a disc with like all sorts of documentaries and behind the scenes stuff. Like it's something that, y- you know, if you're a fan, you should, you should try and grab. It's one of those where I'm like, Ooh, I don't know if I want to spend like the 35 bucks or whatever it ended up being Canadian. So I was like, Hey, anybody for, if you're wondering what to get me for Christmas, like this is what I want. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. So, um, great recommendation, right? And, you know, I'm going to take that recommendation. I'm going to go out and get it because I need a 4K copy of the thing. It's great. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So um, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Alex. Anything you want to uh, plug? Uh, no, just uh, follow me on uh, on Instagram at AJ Pattison, P-A-T-T-E-S-O-N. Uh, if you check it out, I posted today when I was watching the thing, I posted a picture of the, the Steelbook, but because I also collect uh, Laserdiscs, I've got two different Japanese imports of the Laserdisc with like really cool, um, like amazing cover art, like jacket art that's awesome. And I didn't post pictures of it, but I'll see if I can later of like a lot of Japanese Laserdiscs came with like insert booklets. So you fold it out and like the one with the, the special edition that I have of the thing, like it's got like this like trifold gate that you open up and it's got like a... a uh, photocopied like uh, autograph of John Carpenter being like, oh, like watch this one with all the lights off and and his description <laughs> of everything. Obviously, it's all written in like kanji and I, I I can't read it, but the pictures are gorgeous and like yeah, like it's 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 great. So and I've been posting pictures every day of all the horror movies I'm watching this month. So yeah, this is the month if you're gonna want to follow me uh, just to see the the crazy fun stuff I'm uh, I'm watching. But uh, what about you, Jason? Nice. Oh, well, you know, um, I, you know, am on here occasionally. Also, uh, Milkshakes and Mimosas, right, which is the Riverdale podcast. There's a release coming soon um, with Andrew, who, you know, because of the freeze of Riverdale, we're going to be talking about Twin Peaks. So I'm super, super excited about that. I have my own podcast, Moments of Madness, where I talk about social issues through very special television episodes. So you can check that out as well as we talk about uh, Valeska and I uh, just talked about, you know, probably um, something that's near and dear to your uh, Canadian heart, uh, I'm guessing, uh, Degrassi. Oh, of course. Um, Yeah, so, which I'd never seen. So I'd never seen Degrassi as an American, and we had a very interesting conversation about why Degrassi is better than any other teenage television that's available in America and why we're trash and you guys are way better. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, and, um, and oh, I was just gonna ne- say, yeah, we should uh, also make sure to mention the 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 Patreon, right? The uh, milkshakes and mimosas Patreon. You got it. So um, there's a Patreon we have, so you should definitely check that out for milkshakes and mimosas, and um, episodes of Triassic Park as well. Especially as we get into, um, I think we're going to be talking about some Archie and his weird mysteries or that cartoon from, you know, the age, which is bananas. Yep. Maybe Sabrina, the 70s Sabrina teenage witch cartoon, some other stuff too. So definitely check out the Patreon for those. And you could follow me, um, badattitude86 on Twitter. Yeah. So that's it. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks for another great episode of Triassic Park. And, you know, have a great evening.